Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Now we've been in a book of John, but that's been the book of Revelation. But since we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning and since we had the honor of uh, really just uh, praying for Woody and Robert and Jen this morning, I thought we would just extend our communion meditation out uh, a little bit this morning. So I'm going to read from John 3, verses 16 to 21, 16 to 21, and then we'll look at the scripture together. Follow along as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm crying already, y'all. It's going to be an issue today. Well, we've been reading through the book of Revelation, John's vision in Revelation, and we've been exposed to his ability to describe and interpret the visions God gave him. John is able to take those visions in Revelation that God gave him and just describe them in uh, artistic and layered and theological and biblical ways. And I've enjoyed looking at that together with you as we learn together how to interpret those kinds of scriptures in the Bible. Well, this week what I want to do is I want to see together John's ability to describe in artful and biblical and uh, layered ways not a vision of Jesus, but a normal interaction that Jesus had with a particular person. As we get into John 3, I didn't read it, but uh, Jesus in John 3 is talking to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, which means that he was one of the great teachers, one of the ones who was expected to understand and be able to interpret and teach the Old Testament scriptures. And what we see is as he comes to Jesus, John takes the scene uh, and highlights things that sort of describe it in terms of Nicodemus moving uh, ever so slightly from darkness into light. In the first verse or so of John 3, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And that's one of those little uh, clues that John gives us to set up the scene. So if it's at night, Nicodemus probably doesn't want to be seen. I mean, they didn't have street lights. They didn't have light pollution. You could go out uh, in the dark and not be seen if you didn't want to be seen. 
Nicodemus was curious and wanted to talk to Jesus. He understood the Old Testament scriptures and he saw that Jesus taught with authority and with a new uh, interpretation of it, it seemed. And so Nicodemus risks being seen, this Pharisee, who were the, the real uh, enemies of Jesus in, in the, uh, the New Testament age, we see Nicodemus going and speaking to him, and they talk about uh, theological and spiritual realities. They talk about the new birth, and Jesus blows Nicodemus's mind about that. They've discussed Bible text where right above our passage in verse 14 and verse 15, Jesus is talking through this scene in the book of Numbers where this bronze snake was affixed to this pole and lifted up uh, because Israel and her rebellion was being uh, punished by God with snakes. Well, if snakes don't get your attention, then something's wrong with you. I, don't ever bring a snake near me. I won't forgive you. I won't be your friend. It will not be cool. It was nice knowing you. I'm just, you've been warned. <laughs> this will be funny. Let's put a snake in Pastor Drew's office. I'll burn the building down. No, if you, you've been warned. Snakes should do it. So they've talked about Bible text, and now they're getting ready to discuss the amazing reality of Jesus's mission under this theme of light and darkness. And so this morning, as we look at this text, hopefully briefly, but you never know, right? Hopefully briefly, we're going to look at it under three headings, the darkened world, the generous father, and the enlightened believers. First of all, Jesus tells us about the darkened world. And the point that Jesus wants to make is this. God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world. Jesus' mission wasn't a condemnation mission. Now, there are a lot of people who feel like Jesus' mission was a condemnation mission, but let's be honest. Ever since the garden, we've all felt naked and exposed, and we want to cover ourselves. And when you feel naked and exposed and insecure, isn't it so much easier to blame the person who's bringing the light than to curse the darkness? And John tells us Jesus didn't come on a condemnation mission, but it's not for a good reason. The reason that Jesus didn't have to come on a condemnation mission is because the world was condemned already. Once we fell in Adam and Eve, sin spread quick and it spread deep. And all of us have the, the virus of sin written on to the operating system of our life. It affects everything. And it not only makes us like commit sin, even worse, we love sin, don't we? And so when Jesus is talking about this darkened world, listen to what he says. Verse 19, this is the judgment, which in the original language is very, very close to that word condemned in the sentences above it. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. And Jesus says, and this is in Greek, it would have been even clearer. And this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It takes a lot of God-given grace to really see yourself as a sinner, to kind of come to that point where you realize that, man, a lot of stuff has happened to me but the worst stuff that's ever happened to me is really stuff I've done myself. 
That, that's a grace. We were talking about this this morning in our Sunday school class, where there are people who are so fragile emotionally that you can't confront them about a single sin. Because if you, or, or just even a personality quirk, like you chew with your lips open, like you can't, that's not a sin, although I'd make it one if I could. It's not a sin. Um, <laughs> but that's my OCD talking. Don't pay attention to that guy. Uh, where if you bring up anything, it's like that very fragile sense of self that they've built just crumbles. We live in a world full of microaggressions and safe spaces because nobody, it seems, can hear a hard word or hear a truth without being triggered. And then what happens is instead of going, maybe I'm a little sensitive, they just scream, it's your fault. And Jesus faced this reality as well. He came to be a light, but in, in, in response, so many people just proved their own darkness because if you love light, you'll love Jesus. That's the assumption of the Bible. If you, if you love right things, if you love the light, you're gonna love Jesus because Jesus was light. And when he came, he dispelled darkness. Let me tell you, I don't mean to out my family here. So I'm gonna ask a question to which I want all of you to be honest. Have y'all had a lot more roaches in your house lately? Okay, good. I'm getting some... So like the other night, I was... I kind of was going to sleep, but I needed a glass of water. So I got up and in uh, kind of a stupor, I walked into the kitchen. Everybody else was asleep. Uh, and I didn't even turn on the light. I just walked into the kitchen and one sort of light that's always on was on. And we had a thing of trail mix, thankfully with the top on it. And right beside that thing of trail mix was a roach about this long. Now, I immediately woke from my stupor. Uh, and, and I'm just thankful I had neither a gun nor a lightsaber because we would be needing a significant remodel right now. I do want a lightsaber, but again, that's another story. I mean, I basically chased that roach as quietly as I could up and down that kitchen uh, until finally I got him. Um, and I didn't tell my family until after they had already eaten from the trail mix, just as a joke. I'm kidding. Y'all know that that trail mix and peanut butter and all your food has a certain percentage of insects in it anyway, right? I mean, they measure, like, if you have fly legs past a, a Miriam saying, cut it off, move on. Anyway, um, I got that joker. Uh, because he deserved to die because roaches are terrible. I mean, they don't even breathe through their mouths. They have like little tubes all over their body that they breathe air in. They're nasty. They can live for a year off of the, the glue on the back of a stamp. That's just ridiculous. But what happened is, as soon as he saw me, he was like, I'm nicked. And he went for it. He knew because I had entered the room and his nefarious purposes had been discovered. And the roach didn't come out and go, Mr. Drew, just give me a stamp and we're cool. I, I, I just, I'm hungry, right? We didn't have that discussion. He just went for it. And I, I chased, I, my mission was condemnation from that point on. But this, this is what happened. Jesus came into the world and, and by his teaching and by his very life, he made people feel terrible. Not because he was bad, but because he was good. His life brought a weight 
And the reality, his life smelled of the bread cooking in heaven. And that's a problem when you've grown accustomed to and love the stale bread of earth. And so many people, instead of responding to him in repentance and coming forward and going, I don't care if I break apart, I want to be like this guy. I mean, imagine if I could have taken that roach and snapped my finger and turned him into a puppy. Right? But instead of that, he just bolted. And, and it's this, I'm not saying you're a roach. We're worse. He's living according to his nature. We've broken ours into pieces with our perverted desires. And Jesus could have turned them into a puppy, but instead of that, they, they ran. And so they, their works are evil. They don't want their works exposed. They love the darkness rather than the light because they don't want to be shown for what they are. Maybe because they love their sin. Maybe because like them, you don't think you can actually change. And so they don't come to the light. And this is the darkened world. They'd rather kill him than say they're wrong. And of course, you don't have the power, many of you, to re-crucify Jesus. But right now, you think I'm an idiot. And the longer I talk, the worse you think it is. And I am an idiot in many ways. But uh, whenever, you ever notice that Jesus seems to be the one in the West that's the most hated uh, it's because Jesus is the one who's bringing the light. And what he wants us to do is not to further our condemnation by continuing to run. Jesus wants you to come forward and to step into the light and to say, yeah, I'm messed up and this is ugly, but I, I hope and I believe that you can change me. And so into this world that was going to run when the light turned on, this darkened world, we have Jesus telling us about a generous father. It says in verse 16, for God so loved the world. This would have been oddly wonderful to the pagan society of Jesus' day for two reasons. Number one, in Jesus' day, in pagan culture, love was associated with desire and not sacrifice. Does that remind you of anything? Where love is associated with the desire, it's not associated with sacrifice, especially with the way the gods worked. I mean, read Homer. The gods were soap operas of that day. Love was desire, not sacrifice. And this would have been oddly wonderful for them to read this verse. In the original language, it, it reads like this, and I'm not trying to punch anybody's balloon, but when it says, God so loved the world, we think that so is a like an adverb telling us to what extent he loved the world. How much did God love the world? He so loved the world. That's not what that Greek word means. You don't measure God's love by the word so, because that word in the Greek means God loved the world in this way. Okay, so how did God love the world? This is where you measure the intensity of the love. He gave his only son. Uh, the love is not measured by the so, the love is measured by the only son. And so love of sacrifice, and the second reason that pagans would have thought this oddly wonderful is that dealing with the gods was based upon barter and obligation. Never a concern for welfare. It was always concerned for what a god can get out of you. And it says here that this god loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Uh, this also would have been odd for the Israelites. Do you know why? 
Because the Jewish tradition often put a stress on God's abundant special love toward the righteous. In, in Jewish writings, God loved really righteous people. And in Jewish writings, God especially loved his people Israel. But in most texts in Judaism, even in the Old Testament, God really, you don't hear much about God's love for the disobedient. And yet, when Jesus comes, what we're learning is, is that God loves the world. And if you read John, you'll see the way he defines the world. It, it's humanity in mass as it's set against God. And the Bible says that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. His, his only son. That's the unique thing. Y'all know that story from Genesis 22? Many people consider it a terrible story where God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. And you kind of read that story and you wonder, why in the world is that story in the Bible? Is it, it, it is in one sense the Lord. From, from Abraham's perspective, what it is is it's God testing his faith. Do you believe that uh, I can even raise Isaac from the dead? From, from Abraham's perspective, that's what's going on. But we learn in the New Testament there's another layer to the story. Because in Genesis 22, when it talks about Isaac, it uses... And, and the Old Testament was translated into Greek, okay? And the New Testament offers, authors often like to quote the Greek New Testament, all right? Just hold that in your brain while I explain this. In Genesis 22, it says, God says to Abraham, um, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to offer him to me. Now, in the Greek, when it says your son, your only son, Isaac, that word only son is a Greek word, monogonous, and that's not from that Muppet song. Monomena. All right, sidetrack. Uh, or monogonous. Uh, it means your special son, because Abraham actually had another real son, didn't he? Uh, and so when the Lord says your, your special son, Here's what's going on. In the New Testament, that word is picked up in a few significant places, John 3 being one of them, because basically what God was doing in that story of Abraham was not only testing Abraham's faith, what the Lord was doing is he was setting up the standard of what it means to love someone. And what it means to love someone is you do not withhold your son, your only son. And when it says here that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his Monogonous. He's going back to Genesis 22, and here's what he's saying. I won't spare my only son for you. Let that just soak in. The thing, that's the thing about the, the weird stories of the Old Testament is normally they're, they're teeing up a slam dunk in the New Testament. And so it says, God loved the world in this way. He's a generous father. And he sent his son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life in John, John comes with his own dictionary. John says, this is eternal life that you know God and the one whom he has sent, Jesus. And perishing is to die not knowing God. Having eternal, so God sent his son to a sinful cockroachy world so that they might come to the light of his son, be forgiven through his death and come to know him. And here's the problem in our world. This is my deepest problem in life, and I believe as a pastor who deals with people a lot, this is your biggest problem in life. Are you ready? 
that you are more willing to believe your intuition about God than God's word about God. And see, your intuition is shaped by all kinds of things that maybe happened to you or you've done or you've seen, <clears throat> but you live in this world and you know the real world. And so when you think about God the way you think about God is the right way. And what I'm here to tell you, because like my only authority as a pastor comes from the degree to which I stick to the Bible and try my best to live it out. I have no, once I step down here, I'm another dude, right? But let me say, on the basis of the authority of God's word, God's word is the truth and your intuitions are not. And what we have to do as Christian believers is to train our intuitions to respond to God the way our word tells us to do that. And the Bible says that God loved you so much that he did not spare his only son, but gave him up that you might know him. And you have to let that interpret your experiences rather than the other way. So we have this <clears throat> darkened world. We have this generous father. And now we have the enlightened believer. And here's the only thing I want to say about the enlightened believer, because it's pretty cool. There are two differences between the person in the dark and the person in the light. So look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's two differences I want you to notice here because it's important in the way that Christians think about themselves and the way that we relate to the world. And it's important for you in here who don't believe in Jesus to get this. What makes the evil person evil? It's this, A, that they do a lot of wicked things, plural. See that? Wicked things, all right? And then the other thing that they do is because they think their things are their works, rather than take credit for them, they hide because they don't want to take the blame. So they assume, rightly so, that they're responsible for all of their wicked things. Now, what happens with this lover of the light? Two things happen. Number one, they don't do good things. What does it say? Whoever does, and in the Greek it's clear, the true. It's singular. In other words, what's going on here is that people who are in the light don't come into the light because they have a list of good deeds. They come into the light on the basis of one thing they do. And then the second thing, and so what is that one thing they do? They, they believe in Christ. They, 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 they've just basically tethered themselves to Jesus so that where he goes, they go. And what he says, they listen to. Jesus has become the center of their way of interpreting the world, interpreting their lives, thinking, acting, He's revolutionary. There's one thing. They believe Jesus. And then the second thing they do is they don't take credit for the fact that they believe in Jesus. Whoever does the true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly... I want everybody to see this. Everybody see this. Anything good in me, God did it. I'm not going to take responsibility you know, I did it my way, right? I'm not going to claim responsibility for my many things and therefore head into the dark. 
I'm just going to do the one thing, and then I'm going to come out in front of the world, and I'm going to go, God did that. That's the path to enlightenment. The path to enlightenment is not a new series of things. The path to enlightenment is one thing. I trust what Jesus did can save me. It can make me a puppy instead of a cockroach. And God did it. And Christians, this should change the way we relate to the world because do we often relate to the world as if we only do one thing and God did it? Or do we often relate to the world as if we do a bunch of good things and we did it? And to that degree, the world looks at us and goes, I just play in the dark with my sin. So let's apply this before we take the Lord's Supper. Number one, don't live in the dark. Come to the light. You have a porn addiction? Come to the light. Join the club of redeemed gross sinners. You have a drinking problem? Come to the light. Join the, the league of people in whom God worked. Do you have years-long bitterness? I don't know if I told you this. Last two Friday nights ago, I went and led worship at a Celebrate Recovery thing. And the, the guy leading it is a pastor. And he came up to me and he basically said, friend, I need to confess to you a sin. I, I barely knew the guy. Um, but there was a person who had come to our church who then went to his church. And he thought that I had judged them too quickly and a bunch of stuff happened, and he got really angry with me, even though he didn't know me. I had no idea any of this was going on. Uh, and just some things happened so that he realized that um, I, I wasn't as bad as he thought I was. And let me just say that. I'm not as bad as you think I am. Uh, in general, I, I'm, I'm worse than you think I <laughs> right, in some ways. But I, I, I didn't know he was mad at me. I didn't, he could have lived the rest of his life and just said, I was wrong, I forgive the guy, I'm gonna be his friend. Instead, he came up to me, and it's so amazing because we were at a Celebrate Recovery thing where people were confessing the darkness of drinking and drugs, and they were talking about their life and what led to it and terrible parenting and their own rotten choices and they talked about porn addiction and all kinds of stuff, and these people were just stepping out into the light. And that pastor modeled it by coming up to me and saying, I was bitter at you for a long time, and I realized now I shouldn't have been, I'm sorry. I was just like... I like you. Yeah, and not because you did that, but because you did that. You, I need to be more like that. You have years-long bitterness with someone? Bring it out into the light. Be because hiding in the dark won't, won't get you anywhere. There's a very religious way to hide in the dark, isn't there? How did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, how did he come to Jesus? by night. There's very religious ways to sew up fig leaves. Some of us, when we feel conviction or when someone tells us that we've done something wrong, we bite back and then we immediately run in our mind to justify ourselves with all the things we've ever done for them, with all the church attendance, 
with all the giving, with all the ministry, after everything I've done for you, how could you possibly say that? And that, my friends, is the way religious people live in the dark. That doesn't mean that we have to just go, you're probably right every time somebody says something against us. It's not what I'm saying. It's just because we realize, like I say, the thing that's true about me is true about you. Aren't you worse than everybody thinks you are? So when you discover some terrible secret about me, hopefully it's not too terrible. Hopefully it's not like the kind of thing that will get me out of ministry. I don't think there's anything like that. But if you discover some weird character quality, here's what I'll say. Thank you. Thank you. Let me add it to the list of all the things that I now need to be dependent upon Jesus to change. And you help me. That's, that's living in the light. Because here's the thing. In the past, I've kept secrets from friends. I've kept secrets from my wife. I've kept secrets from all kinds of people. And thinking that that was protecting me from something, in reality, it was eating me up from the inside. And the moment I came out thinking that everybody was going to hate my guts to confess my sins, every single stinking time they said, we love you. And then all of a sudden, I was, I was no longer being eaten up from the outside. I was being filled by the grace of Christ. My wife is an exceptionally wonderful woman. And my friends are Christian friends. And I've discovered that when I step out, they don't sneer at me. They grab my arm and start pulling. And let me say this. If you're in the dark, we may not do it well, but I swear we'll try. We'll try. We'll do our best. We got our own darkness. We got our own mess. But we'll try. I'll help. Don't live in the dark. Second, the reason you want to come to the light is because life with God is experienced in the light. Let me read some Bible verses. They might be in there. Thomas, I may need your help. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8. Oh, man, I missed such a good point there. Let me make a quick point. Uh, everywhere in John, when John talks about Jesus' mission, he says that God sent his son. I have three pages of that. But in John 3, 6, if you're not a member here, I'm exhaustive and often exhausting. Uh, but in John 3, 16, it doesn't say that God sent his son. What does it say? He gave love that. On to the other verses. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8. For you are children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. If you're drunk in here, what do you need in order to be sober? You need faith and you need love. And you need the helmet of the hope of salvation, not just salvation from hell, but salvation from your sin. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 5, 7, therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found 
uh, in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That means that you actually now, listen to me, you can do things that bring God pleasure. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's Paul talking to that church. 1 John 1, 5 through 8. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you want to get close to God? Here's the blessed problem. He is light and you got to come out into it. But if you come out into it, you're getting closer. You're getting closer. So don't live in the dark. And then the second thing, and I've already made this point, so I'll just make it briefly. Um, believe that God loves you. I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more times. Martin Luther one time said that faith is in the personal pronouns. Now, what did he mean by that? I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. I'm talking about Martin Luther. All right? Martin Luther said, faith is in the personal pronouns. What did he mean? He means you don't just say God is loving. You say God loves me. You don't just say God is a savior. You say God is saving me. Believe the heart of God towards you. Communion is meant to remind you of that. Communion is an act that is designed to help us to remember at least two great truths about Jesus. First, that he took up flesh and blood, and second, that he willingly gave them for us. As we taste the fruit of the vine and the bread, we're reminded that Jesus is not a concept. He is a person. We're reminded that grace is not abstract, but was purchased through real blood and torn flesh. We're reminded that as easy as grace is to say, it came at infinite cost we're reminded that the gospel is important. Because the gospel is important, communion is not meant to be taken lightly.